this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Wow, do you have ever one of those conversations where you just feel like you need to take a big, deep breath because you've just talked to someone who talks really, really fast? That is the experience I had in interviewing my next guest, Andy Nolman, who is a prolific entrepreneur of the highest order. So uh, we're going to talk about his business, Airborne, which in and of itself is an amazing story. Um, prior to Airborne, he was the co-founder and CEO of one of the world's largest comedy festivals, even if, if not the most largest, um, called Just for Laughs. Uh, he's also now uh, an entrepreneur in his own right again now in, in a new business called Play the Future. Uh, this interview is wide-ranging, and I think you're going to really like it. Uh, keep a listen out for how Andy took advantage of what was happening in his industry, the mobile industry, and how he leveraged some of the brands he was working with, like Fox and Disney and Maximum NHL, to sort of, to, in his own words, make his own business almost tertiary to the investment option that, uh, that the buyers made, or investment decision the buyers made. Um, I love his little comment. It's a short comment, but listen for it when he talks about his logo and what he wanted to make sure his logo did for kids in particular. Um, he talks about and defines a put option, which um, may, you may find interesting. So have a listen for that. And then he talks about the biggest mistake and the danger of, of sort of believing in your own press and, and getting a little fat, if you will, he, his terms, not mine. Um, but, uh, and, and the reaction he had when Apple came calling on him after he'd sold his business. So, so lots of tasty little nuggets in here. And I'll let Andy Nolman tell you the rest of the story. Andy Nolan, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Well, thank you, John. I'm so excited to hear this story about Airborne. Tell, first of all, for folks who don't know Airborne, give us the, what, what, what kind of company were you? What, what, what did you guys sell? Well, Airborne was a pioneer in the space of mobile media. We started the company, its, it's seeds were planted in 1999, but it really became a company that was focused on mobile media in the year 2000. So you gotta understand this for a second. Uh, in 2000, phones were green screen with black dots on them. They didn't have color screens at the time. And we were going to people and telling them that one day people will be watching TV on these things. And they thought we were crazy. But we started the company, myself and my partner, Garner Bornstein, in 1999. And the goal was to develop mobile content 
for uh, for mobile phones. And so we were really, really, really early in this. And I still remember our, our first um, content was humor content. And uh, that was because I had a history in the world of, of comedy and, uh, and humor. And it was SMS based. We went out after we were developing ASCII art for like just dot art for uh, phones, for wallpaper. We were making pictures of dots. How were you and, visually uh, making money at this? Well, we had um, venture, so a bit of venture capital money in the beginning, and uh, from people who had built, uh, who had financed a web business that Garner and I started. And because the web business wasn't going anywhere, we took the money that we had raised there and had, uh, you know, basically, I guess the right word is pivoted it over to the mobile company. But basically, it was a last resort uh, to tell our investors, well, rather than just, you know, close shop and throw your money back at you, how about we go into mobile? Now you got to again remember it is so pervasive nowadays but in year 2000 there really was not much happening here uh, but we saw what was happening over in japan we saw what was happening over in europe and we said we think that this is going to come here which is why we made the bet on mobile got it okay so take us from from there so startup days you get some vc money in how did it go from there i mean eventually like what, what were the big sort of inflection points in the business as, as, as it evolved well, I guess the inflection points were, uh, uh, we'll get to the inflection points in, in a second, but the first part was get, raising the money and dealing with the people who raised the money from. Um, they, you know, the old expression, you don't bet on the horse, you bet on the jockey. I guess they bet on, you know, this, these two jockeys because Garner had built an internet company and sold it. And I had run and built uh, Just for Last Comedy Festival into the world's greatest, you know, humor event, and perhaps one of the world's largest arts and entertainment events. And uh, so those are the jockeys they bet on so um they had a bit of a bit i'm using that word very very importantly a bit of faith in us but i still remember board meetings when we told them that we we were pursuing this mobile media space this venture that was you know not even nascent not even embryonic it hadn't reached that point yet and they thought we were they, our own board thought we were crazy our own investors thought we were crazy they, they kept on saying things to us like um what's your backup plan i said well there is really no backup plan and they said well jean-marie messier who owned universal at the time he, he has a backup plan for water why don't you guys get into the water business we said the water business and you know and they used it was funny they used messier was one of the world's great scammers uh, as an example they not that they knew then but so you got to understand we went into this with the greatest of skepticism from everybody so um that didn't stop us we believed in it and well i, I guess that we can say we believed in it we, we realized we had to make it and uh, and i guess at this point in time we, we said that uh, our business was a combination of uh, vision and larceny vision because of the fact that uh, we said you know we, we can see the future and larceny because we were basically lying to people saying that we can see the future <laughs> and uh, we said that this is where it's going and mobile is where it's at and that was really our pitch and uh, we sold them the vision of color screens and motion video and games even though these things didn't exist at the time and um, you know we got a couple of nibbles in our home land in Canada but really it started to happen when we said look it's, this is not going to be a Canadian in business and we just took it into the United States. So the inflection points were just, you know, it really, uh, it was a digital business, but we felt like peddlers. And I felt really good at this because my great grandfather came from the old country and was a peddler, went, you know, door to door in Montreal with a horse drawn cart selling things. And that's basically what I did. But uh, rather than being a horse drawn cart, I walked 
down Sixth Avenue in New York, and uh, we took meetings. And luckily, you know, my background in, at just for laughs in the comedy business allowed me, gave me a bit of cred. So people opened a few doors uh, to me. But we met people like I can give names. I should give names because these are people who had vision or had nothing to lose. But um, uh, there was uh, Barry Pincus at Maxim Magazine at Dennis Publishing, Ryan Hughes at the NHL, um, or Keith Ritter at the NHL. There was Mary, oh my God, I'm, I'm blanking on her last name at HBO. What are you, uh, what are you pitching them though? Like what, what is it that you're, what, what is the pitch? Uh, well, uh, I'll give a trip, a trip word at Disney. The pitch was, hey, mobile is coming. Why don't we take some of your um, uh, assets and mobilize them. That was the word we used. We mobilized them. And it was a rev share agreement. We said, look, just give us your assets and we will go ahead and um, mobilize them, make wallpapers and ringtones and uh, you know, the most um, uh, embryo, I'll use the embryo, games out of them. And uh, eventually when people figure out how to pay for this, we will pay you. But right now it's really promotional. And certain people said, what do I have to lose? Like the people I mentioned, and uh, I'll mention another and Trip Wood of, of Walt Disney, who said, look, we want to do something for Monsters, Inc. Can you come up with a game for Monsters, Inc.? And we came up with a game for, that was a maze game. Uh, and every time you reach a certain level of the maze, a certain picture popped up on your phone of the characters of Monsters, Inc. Again, created out of little pixels, pixelated dots. And that's what we did. And as the industry grew and the streams became color and suddenly they had full motion video, we were there. But that really, what, what it was, was uh, follow us into the future. And, and it was really follow us into the future and what do you got to lose? Those were our pitch points. And were these rev share agreements exclusive, meaning nobody else could develop mobile content for the likes of Disney or the NHL, or, or were they non-exclusive? Oh, they were. Most of them were exclusive. But remember something: it was so early that nobody really cared. So they signed these deals. Nowadays, life would be very different. But back then. These were deals that, that were, were met with, with I met as, as skepticism before, you know, let, let's take, we take many stronger words. Uh, they were met with, with disdain. They were met with, are you going to be ridiculous? You're going to be stupid to do this. That, that's, you know, what some of our, our people told us, their, their, their peers and their superiors told them. But uh, yeah, that's what it was met with back, back at the time. And uh, yeah, they were exclusive deals. And I'll tell you about you know, a couple of them that, that came to fruition that uh, really changed the nature of the game for this company. Great. Like what? Like Family Guy, um, Family Guy with, with Fox. We had, we did a couple of deals with Fox. Again, I mentioned names only because these people were phenomenal and, and visionary and took risks with us. Mitch Feynman at Family Guy and uh, at Fox and um, Family Guy at the point in time was a um, a failed television show. This was his first time out. It had failed and, and it was on video only at the time. Uh, it was a, a video only product at the time because it was not on television. And there was a guy at Fox, Jim Beddoes. He came to one of our parties. We talked talk to him about it, and for $10,000, we signed an exclusive deal with Fox, and literally on the back of a napkin at one of our parties in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, we signed a deal for Family Guy. So next thing that happens, um, it gets the spot, uh, I think it was a post-Super Bowl spot, suddenly it's on air again, it becomes the hottest thing, and we have this exclusive deal. Phones become colors, you know, we can get video on them, and we have, you know, Stewie ringtones, uh, you know, Stewie wallpaper, and uh, uh, we made Family Guy games, and suddenly we were making millions by millions of dollars on Family Guy mobile um, content. And the same thing with Maxim, and the same thing with the NHL, and the NFL, and I can go on and on. So at what point did you decide that you might want to sell this company? What was the sort of triggering event there? 
The triggering event was my partner Garner had been through this before, and he had sold his previous company. So there was no qualms about selling. There was no, oh, we want to build a legacy business for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You know, I don't know if those even exist anymore. Um, you know, you look at Amazon, you look at Facebook, but really when you look at company lifespan of companies these days, you know, it is very limited. And I look at companies that were mega hot a few years ago and that are almost non-existent today. So we didn't think at any point in time we were building a legacy venture that was going to take care of, you know, generations upon generations of our families. We said, let's, you know, we were entrepreneurs. Uh, let's build something. Let's get what we can while we can. And let's move on to the next thing because it'll give us you know, a great amount of credibility as well as you know, a few dollars in the bank. And that, so there was never any qualms about it. It was almost a natural path uh, to a natural path to success. It, it never seemed like anything else other than that. So what was the, was there a moment in time that you receive an inbound offer? Did like, I get that you built it to sell. I, I understand that. But what, what was the no, trigger that made you kind of... Job, I, I got to say, we didn't build it to sell. We built it. We built it. And we weren't afraid to sell it. I think when you go into a business and say, I'm building this to sell, you're doing, the wrong, you're doing it the wrong way. Anytime I've done anything specifically for money, it's blown up in my face. If you go into a business saying, I'm building this to sell, trust me, it's not going to work. If you go into a business and say, I'm going to build the best business I can, and hopefully someone will, will think enough of it to want to buy it, then hallelujah. But, but going in with the the objective strictly to sell, I think is is wrong, and, and it will de-karmaize you and blow up in your face. <laughs> de-karmaize you, I love that. So, okay, so... so let's uh, go back. I, I, so, but, but Airborne, it, it's a strange story because it just goes to show you why timing, why timing is everything. We got an offer from this company called, called Index Corp in uh, Japan, and they offered the company, uh, they offered, offered $10 million for the company uh, in 2004. And I spoke to my partner. We said, uh, "What do you think?" And uh, he said, "Yeah, let's uh, let's do it. We're going to be crazy. They're putting ten million dollars in the table. Why not?" We didn't put a lot of money into, the, into this company, and uh, we we don't owe a lot of money, on, you know, in terms of equity on it. Out. What's, what's the company doing? Just, what's the company doing in terms of revenue or EBITDA at that point? Uh, I think, and I remember our, our numbers. We did eighty thousand to our number eighty thousand two uh, two hundred thousand. Two million, eight million, thirty-five million. That was our that was our ramp up. So at this point in time, I don't. I think we may have been in the you know the the eight hundred thousand uh, uh, dollar that that phase that 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 phase. So it was we were doing okay, um, and uh, you know we had a lot of contracts and things were moving. Nice cash flow, and uh, so Index Corp came to us for uh, and wanted to put ten million dollars, and we said yes. And then we went through due diligence and we went through this and for term sheet and yeah, yes, 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 yes to everything. And um, at the last minute, they pulled out. And we were, de I, maybe Gardner wasn't deposition, speak for him, but uh, I think he was, but I was devastated. I mean, you know, this money's on, on the table. I'd never seen money like this before. And um, it was, it was on, on the table and uh, it was pulled off. And, and yeah, I, I was like shocked, shocked. My, my stomach is pit in my stomach, you know, it felt like a, a cement mixer just going in my stomach. It was like you know, spinning all the time. And, and it took me a couple months to to get back on the horse after that. But we did. And, you know, we, we were, you know, we were 
getting more contracts and uh, more revenue and the company was built it was expanding we are about 100 people right now and we got uh, a, a, another offer this this one we sort of led ourselves into after the first one and that came from a company called cyber and that was you know for about a hundred a hundred million dollars a year later so this goes to show you you know had we taken that first offer you know very very different path than what we got um just a year later as the industry started to to grow and uh, expand that we were in the right place at the right time so the index offer why did it fall apart no idea. With no idea. They never really told us. They, you know, they never. So again, names Watanabe San. I don't know why. It just did. They never explained why. They just said sorry, not in, not interested. And you see that sometimes people go ahead and uh, make an offer. And, you know, it's a non-binding term sheet, and they'll pull it off the table. That's life. Or they'll change terms to the last minute. That's life. But uh, so that was <laughs> that was what life gave us at, at that uh, at that point in time. So, so you you were saying your run rate, um, and I just wasn't clear at, when at the time of the index uh, offer of ten million dollars, roughly your annual revenue. That's probably about two million. It's probably about two million. Roughly about two million. So yeah. so a, a really healthy offer on two million dollars of revenue, five times top yeah. on revenue, just a. So anyway, that was uh, that, that was the, the story there. But I can go back, you know, the, the the here's what we've learned. And John, a lot of times you fool yourself. Uh, and what I've tried to be at least, you know, uh, is a realist. And when you when you have these type of dollar figures thrown at you and you have people wanting your company, you can say, look how smart I am. Look how brilliant I am. What a phenomenal businessman I am. Look what I've built. And, you know, the world is coming to me. And when you find out the reality, you realize that, um, hey, you know what? Uh, it's not about you. It's about things that, have totally, that are totally not related, perhaps, to anything you've done other than built something that's 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 pretty decent. So I'll give you the the the, the uh, Cybird story. Mm-hmm. In that year between Index and Cybird, what happened was all the Japanese companies were buying American companies. They were all buying American companies, and uh, there were very few companies of stature uh, at the time in mobile. We were one of them, luckily, and. Um, Suddenly, index uh, um, cyber shareholders were saying, "Hey, look at this! Everyone in your competitors has bought a North American company or an American company, North American company, except you. You're sitting on all these this wad of cash. How come you're not buying um, uh, American companies?" So they saw their stock price going down because of the fact that the shareholders were a little pissed off that these guys were sitting on cash and not doing everything that they're competition we're doing which was buying american companies so they said well we better go buy an american company and this is there were very few left so there were way more um you know the, the there, there was a way more demand than there was supply so that's how we were able to get the price up and uh and that's how we sold so in essence we you know yes we built something that was good and we were happy we had a, a nice run made at the time but because of the greed of uh, certain investors in Japan, that's why we were bought in, in essence. So, you know, many times, uh, I don't know anybody else's story, but I know, you know, this story, and I, and, and I know that you know, this is not unique in the world. Sometimes it's things completely out of your control and things that have very little relevance to what you think you're selling, but uh, if they want to buy it, so hallelujah. So your run rate had, had gone to $35 million in annual revenue when you were – you were acquired by Cyber. Later, uh, the, it was at our peak. We were thirty-five million. Yes. Okay, and and that's at, that is at the time that Cyber acquired you, or what? what? I think uh, I think just after. Okay, so you're in that in that sort. Of, I mean, it begs the question. I mean, for a lot of people listening, they're going to go. So, how do you in a year 
go from two million in revenue to thirty-five million in revenue. Like that that seems like almost unbelievable growth. Like what what was well, the- we were John, we were at the time, we were under Deloitte's Fast Fifty, the fourth fastest growing company in North America, the fastest growing company in Canada. And and what's company, driving that? What's that? What, what, what was, was driving, driving that? What's that? So what was driving that, you ask? Yeah. What was driving that was two things. First of all, a pretty a decent company, a pretty decent company with great people, but also an industry that was flying that went from you know zero to a hundred in, in two years. So you went from an industry that nobody gave a damn about to an industry that everybody's talking about. And remember, this is pre iPhone. This is pre we, we sold before the iPhone came out. We were doing apps on WAP that technology before the iPhone came out. We had Food Network, we had all these people. So we were really one of the leaders in the space. In a, You know what it would be like now? Right now it would be if you were really early in Bitcoin or you know uh, marijuana stocks uh, in, the, in the cannabis industry. You're there early and suddenly everyone wants to be in it. And that's where mobile was at this time, at, at, the, at you know 2005. Everyone was talking mobile. You know, the world, the world's going mobile, and uh, here's where it's going. And 3G and Bluetooth, and these were things that didn't necessarily exist at the time, but everyone was talking about. And uh, that's what, so that's where we were. And are you playing on that public discourse, that the sort of notoriety of mobile when you're talking to Cyber or even Index before that? I mean, I'm trying to visualize. Are you talking about your company in those in those pitch de- you know discussions? Or is it more about the industry and the company as sort of a secondary? Oh, and by the way, yeah, we're, we're in that space too. Tertiary. There's three things. One, here's a pretty good company. Two, here's an industry that's going berserk. Three, look who we're working with. They knew the NFL. They knew the NHL. They knew Family Guy and Fox Studios and HBO and Disney. And they knew our clients. And, and you know, they were prestigious clients that we were dealing with. And we had worldwide rights to most of this stuff. So that was uh, important. Look, if this is, again, the lessons we learned is uh, who was airborne? You know, two guys, two guys and, and their, um, uh, their, their compadres. That's, that's all we were. We weren't anybody spectacular or special. But when you looked at who we were working with, they said, holy geez, you're working with Maxim and you're working with, 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 with FHM and you're working with this magazine and this media company. It was impressive. When you look at our client list, you know, a client list was way more impressive than we were, and that's what sold it. So you're combining kind of this the sex appeal of the brands you're working with with the industry that you're in, and and the company itself was almost secondary, in your own words, tertiary. Yeah, per, per, but you know, it was a company that was respectful, that that you know uh, lived up to its word, that was fun, that was renowned. Like I, I did a lot of speaking, so did Garner. So we were face front. We had great PR. We, we worked hard, and uh, we we made sure that even small things. And it's funny I told you about a meeting I was at today regarding imaging for a company I'm consulting with. But at, at Airborne, we made sure like we always said our logo has to be cool. You know. A kid would want to wear this on a T-shirt. They would. A kid would want to spray paint this on a wall. A kid would want to wear this as a tattoo. And that was important because you know little things like you know our, our look and feel, our, our logo, our image, the way we answer the phone. When people walked into our office, it was all very different. It was unique and uh, and, and and special for the period, and uh, and uh, that that did it too. So, but that you know again, but that alone is not going to you know make you a, a massive target. You have to have you know revenue and. and and the fact is, you know, wherever we went, uh, you know, 
know, the, the door was open. We were open with some of the biggest names in the world. That impressed a buyer. And, and clearly it did because they made an offer. So my understanding uh, of the cybered offer was uh, it was was something like 90 million. Is that right? Maybe just talk about the, the, the offer itself and, and what proportion of the business they bought, that kind of stuff. It's, when you look at it now, it's it's funny because now you hear like, oh, you got a ninety or a hundred million dollar because it was it was over ninety U.S., which translates to over one hundred ten million Canadian, um, and that was for eighty five percent of the company. We held held back fifteen, which ended up being very valuable to us, which I'll get to it in a second. Um, but at the time, you know, I don't even, you don't realize this now because you hear multi-billion dollar deals and unicorns and, and all this but at the time we were like perhaps the biggest deal in tech in canada we, there was there was it was a massive deal but you just these days it just seems you know it's i remember when catfish hunter signed the first hundred thousand dollar major league baseball contract it's in the baseball hall of fame you know people were going berserk oh my god the guy's making a hundred thousand dollars a year that wasn't all that long ago now people are, you know a hundred thousand dollars you make that at bat so <laughs> that's what we're looking at you know with this company you're looking at uh oh, that was uh yeah, nice Andy, a hundred million dollars sounds like a lot of money to me. So, okay. <laughs> so right. it sounds so, like but, a big nut. But it was 85 percent. Um, again, I, I got to say that we had some great help with uh, Insight. With um, uh, oh god, I forget the other name of the, the investment banker in, in New York uh, that that, uh, that helped us out. Um, and we had some great lawyers here. They said, you know, don't, don't sell it all, hold back. And and I think also Cyber wanted to make sure that there was fifteen uh, percent for tax reasons, whatever. But the end result was this. Um, there was some hassles. There were some problems. There was some. Pro you know, what happened in North America with uh, Enron happened in uh, Japan with a, a company. I forget the name. So um, you know, all internet companies, uh, whether they were legit or not, were tarred with the same brush. And Cyber, which was a very legit company run by great people who we're still friends with, wonderful people, um, it got taken down because it was part of an industry that like, was it was Enron esque. You know, there, there were a couple of uh, bad seeds in the, the uh, internet digital industry. So its stock price went down. It couldn't afford to pay for the 15% more because we had to put on it. They had to pay for the 15%. So basically what they said was – and they didn't want to face lawsuits in North America. Because of this, they said, you know what? Take the, take the rest of the take, – take the whole thing back for, for a dollar. So we did. So that was uh, – so, so we ended up selling it and getting it back for a dollar and selling it again. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Um, so again, for folks who don't know what a put option is, let's let's define that because it's an incredible story. But you owned you 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 maintained ownership of 15 percent of the stock, which they had to buy by a certain point in time, which is a which is called a put, meaning you can right. put your shares to them and, and insist that they they or not insist, but they're legally contractually obliged to buy them at That's a certain right. point in time. And so you had that put option, and and so they were they would have to write a subsequent check, correct? Uh, and they were either unable to or unwilling to write that check, correct? Do you know which and, of the two it was? Um, I think that uh, they just said, you know, we, we have so many things to deal with in Japan. This is taking our eye off the ball, and uh, you know, better we just absorb the loss and move on. And I, I think it's that. Why? I mean, you know, why didn't there was they just no buy? Why didn't they just 
hire an M&A banker and, and sell it. Like it clearly was a valuable company. I, I have no, I, there, there were things, you know, if there was, there were going to be hassle, if there were, there were things that were going to be done, there were going to be hassles that can lead to legal. And I, I just think that, that they had other more pressing issues. And uh, look, I, I don't know what the reason was. I was just, you know, happy that it was. Yes. So, <laughs> okay. So, so that goes to my point I made before. It's a lot of this stuff is out of your control, and you can go ahead and say how brilliant you were to set this up. But you know, I think many times we retrofit intelligence based on you know some happenstance that we were lucky enough you know to take advantage of. Just the same way, many times you get a kick in the ass. It's not your fault, but what can you do? Like, I, I look at these these companies now where, where that, are, that are going down because of uh, these you know, s- you know sexual lawsuits and sexual impropriety and you know companies and people and, and you know uh, look at five hundred startups. You know, the, the problems that it, that, that, that company had uh, because of you know certain things that went on. Not that it's the fault of you know, you know some of the other VCs or some of the the assistants or the analysts that work there, but they were basically you know uh, hit by that tsunami. So that happens on the negative side, but it also happens on the positive side. Many things happen that are out of your control, and wow, I got lucky because that was put into place way back when. Yeah, yeah, you you seem to have won the lottery a couple of times over here. This is this is this is this is amazing. So let's talk about uh, the venture capitalists at the, at the table because they came to the table early in Airborne's uh, kind of tenure. They saw you and Garner as, as credible entrepreneurs that had a success rate, so they invested in you. Um, did they hold that investment to the time of the cyber acquisition? Yes, most, they, virtually everybody did. And everybody uh, meaning there was more than one venture capitalist at the table. Oh God, yeah. I mean, and we also had investors who put in. You know, uh, I still remember there was a guy, uh, Mel Hoppenheim. We needed to close around. We needed a hundred thousand dollars, and we called him up, and and we we. You know, I would say begged him because I, I knew him relatively well. And I just said, look, we need this. And he was a wealthy guy. And he put in $100,000 and he forgot about it. And like two years later, we had called him up and said, you have a million dollar check for you. Where do we send it? And that's really what it was. It was 10x in, in, in two years. This was the how the cyber uh or, or the, the the people who invest in the company, how they made out as a result of the cyber acquisition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, And then how did they, how did it, how were they structured? So when they... Um, as investors, when Cybert comes in and, and acquires the, the business, um, do they pay cash? Yep. And they pay cash to those. So the investors got their money out. Were they also required or invited to, to keep some money in in the 15%? Yes, they were. Uh, and and um, uh, the majority of them did. They, they, we prorated all that. And so then they too, I'm assuming, uh, enjoyed the benefit of of being able to buy back in for a dollar the entire business. Correct. Is that right? Most of them, most of them did. I, I don't remember this fully. I mean, that so much water has passed under the bridge in the 12 years since. But uh, um, I got to tell you one thing. None of our early investors, um, you know, ignore me. Let's leave it at that. They're, they're all friends. <laughs> I should think so. So, okay. So let's get into it. So you buy this company back, you sell it for a hundred million, then you buy it back for a dollar. <laughs> then what? It's incredible. Well, you know, here's what happens and talk about lessons learned. So what happens? You, you, you just made a lot of money. So the, the hunger that brought you to that place, I, and I have to say this is the greatest regret, the greatest mistake of, of my life. It, and I would say this for both Garner and myself, the hunger that brought us there 
did not sustain. And suddenly, oh, I want a vacation. I want to go spend the summer in a treehouse. I want this. I want that. Let's see. So what, what happened was, just to tell you the story of, of what happens when you get too fat, um, uh, Apple was releasing the iPhone. We were not on the first wave. It re was released without us. But once it was released, we were we, we were one of the pioneers of mobile. They they reached out to us and said, "Look, we're going to make the S the software developers could available to you. We want you to to get involved with us." And this is really 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 early. You got to understand. It's like you know a, 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 two weeks after launch. And the, what's the revenue model? Well, it's a rev share. We keep uh, thirty. You get seventy. But you do all the marketing. So hold on one second. We do all the marketing. And you get thirty, and you know, we only keep seventy. But we, 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 you know, we don't pay anything. No, no, no. We're going to give you distribution. We have this thing called the App Store. So, what did we say? Early, what we would have said three years earlier is yes. What we said now was, hey, you know, let's take a look. Uh, we've we've seen people come and go in this business. You know, this platform, that platform. We'll see how well you do, and we'll decide later. And uh, obviously, a very very foolish decision because look where the iPhone is. Look how it's changed the world. And we could have been on the, I wouldn't say the ground floor, but I'd say the mezzanine. And and we were stupid. And uh, a very 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 important lesson. So, you know, that's what happened then. So the company went along and uh, you know we tried to get into the space and uh, but basically it's best days were behind it uh, because the, the industry took up real fast and we were still you know again it goes to show you we, i talked for building a legacy company what was hip and happening three years before these ringtones and wallpaper were unnecessary now because people could take a snippet of a song right off their phone uh, or they can take a picture with their camera and make it their wallpaper they're not buying you know a, a three or a four or five dollar wallpaper for their phone anymore what they were doing three years prior previous they were doing it themselves. So our business went basically. You take a ball, roll it down the table, and it falls off the edge. That was our. That was the, basically our our revenue line. Hmm. Wow. So you, yeah, we, you... we so we obviously sold it the second time for a whole lot less than the first time. But uh... <laughs> who did you sell it to the second time? Uh, a company, if I remember correctly, it was Razorfish. It was uh, some uh, another company in the media space. It was for, you know, it was for the hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions. And uh, but we were just, you know, again, better that than nothing. And uh, but very important lessons learned. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I mean, did you at any point kind of go back to Apple, kind of tail between the legs, and say, we, you know, we messed up. We we should have been more open to your no that that ship had sailed like you know that that point in time was getting aligned so mm -hmm. fascinating how fast that business moves yep I'm, I'm telling you we saw i remember you can pinpoint you know, I, I just read the other day in this book called hit makers they were talking um uh, about the, the spotify did a, a survey and they found that when people uh, stop listening to new music when they just basically say oh, i just want to hear the same stuff over and over again that's at the end they pinpointed at the age of 33. we uh, i mean at airborne we pinpointed the exact week where our business reached its peak and, and started to be because of the iPhone. We, we, we said, this is the week where everything changed. What and was, what was going on that week? It was just was, I think when, when iPhone was getting, um, you know, uh, was just basically getting major league traction and people just said, you know, the, what, what uh, used to happen, what, what used to be hip and cool isn't anymore. It just really happened overnight. How did that impact you emotionally? 
you know, at the time, I, it, it's easy to look at now. At the time, what you do is what every company does, clutches its straws and let's do this and, and, and you know, panic mode and we're going to go into this, we're going to go into that, we're going to try this and try that and you know, let, let, let's uh, go ahead and uh, diversify. And you know, we, we're almost going back to what, uh, what um, our, our board recommended before by having a backup plan for water. We were going to all sorts of wacky things uh, so that's how you react with it. You know, you, you, I think you need some context. You need some time to pull away and, and look back with reflection. And you can't reflect when you're in the middle of, you know, uh, madness. And uh, I wish we could have. I, you know, perhaps a smart thing would have done would have been to say, you know, what we're taking a month off and coming back. But it's hard to do that when when you have like a we didn't have 100 employees at the time. We had to lay some off. So anyway, it was the classic story of. Of uh, you know that that classic product life cycle or business life cycle of you know uh, that that bell curve and uh, the roller coaster was was going down down the mountain. It sounds like it's a very accelerated roller coaster. Yeah, and but you say how was it emotionally? You know, you, you went to work every day. Uh, you say you know let's look at the numbers. What can we do to turn it around? Well, that's not working. What else can we do to turn it around? Let's trust me. That's not working. Well, what can we do to turn it around? That's not working. So let's cut here. Let's cut expenses. And at one point in time, you realize it's over, and you say, you know, how long are we going to keep this on life support? And, uh, and let's look for what the next thing is to do. How did you handle those conversations with the investors? Because clearly they, they had won at one point when – Oh, it was – let me tell you how easy it was. It was you – know, nobody cared. <laughs> they, they Look, when an, when an investor puts money into a, a company, especially at the stage they put it into to us, they weren't thinking they were getting anything back. They, was, they were saying, okay, I'll, I'll do this or maybe it'll be a tax write-off. I'm helping some guys out, you know, whatever it is. These guys had scored in ways that they never thought possible. So do you think they're going to nitpick with us because on the second time around, we, you know, we didn't make it worth their while, you know, that worth their while? They didn't care. At what point did, did you realize that you know, enough was enough and, and that you were, you were going to sell the razorfish? What was, the, was there, a, again, a triggering event there? Or? Well, we, I think Garner and I realized that, um, that uh, we did not have the answer and uh, you know, better give the question to somebody else. It really was that. It, again, it's so ironic. John, because I'm talking to you today from an office that is a building that is literally two, I am literally sitting in a boardroom, two floors directly above where my office was. I'm in the, if you, if I could hulkify right now and bust through two floors, I'd be sitting in my office where, where Airborne was uh, all those many years ago. Wow. And so what are you up to now? What, what, uh. I mean, tell me about Just for Laughs and, and, and Oh, I'm not with Just for Laughs anymore. I, you know, Just for Laughs was a wonderful two-time experience. But um, I, I'm working on a number of projects. My main project is a thing called Play the Future, which is predictive gaming, which I, I believe in as much now as I believe in mobile when we first started. And we're having a, a similar reaction to it where people don't necessarily get it. But that's cool. And what, what I mean by predictive gaming, you're familiar with fantasy sports, I suspect. Yeah. And, well, this is fantasy life, where you go ahead and make predictions and, and, and bets on, well, although we're not real money betting just yet, but uh, on, on everything from how many tweets Donald Trump is going to make, uh, going to make tomorrow and um, uh, you know, what, the, what the weather, what the high temperature is going to be in Davos tomorrow. It's all based on what's happening in the world today. 
but um, uh, but people make predictions on it. So what we do is for all people who, for people in the world who don't like sports, uh, we have uh, an application and a platform that allows them to make predictions uh, on everything. So I, I'm looking at our app right now. Uh, how many Spotify monthly listeners will Elton John have tomorrow at 11? The reason because he's just announced he's not having you know, he's not uh, touring anymore. Um, uh, so, you know, all bunch of how many of Donald Trump's statements will be marked as false on PolitiFact Monday at 11 uh, Eastern? Because Trump talks about fake news, so we would say, okay, how many times has he been called out for being fake? So these are all data points that can be measured, uh, measured in a black and white manner, no gray zone, the same way a sports score can. So that's what we've done. We've basically gamified life. We say life's a game, and if it can be measured, it can be played. We're developing it in two verticals within the gaming slash gambling space and in the media space we think that this is the fodder for you know, a television show. Um, John Oliver has last week tonight. This would be next week tonight where people will talk about um, what's happening. But they can actually make predictions on it and play along um, in a mobile app. Wow. So that's one of the businesses. And there's a couple other things. I'm working with an upstart comedy festival here that uh, wants to do something new and different. And, uh, oh, there's a winter product I'm working on, a Broadway-bound play I'm working on. So there's a, f- a few things that, that are, are interesting. But I think if they have all one thing in common, it's it's uh, the same thing we had back at Airborne where people said, oh, this will never work, which is what I love. The challenge. Well, Andy, what's the best way, if, if people wanted to say hi on, on social media or, or connect with you in some way, what's the, what's the is there a website or a Twitter feed? What's the best way to connect? Say hi. They should open their windows and yell real effing loud. I think that's a wonderful way. Andy! But barring that, you know, it's simple. Uh, I, my email is my name. It's Andy at AndyNolman.com, N-U-L-M-A-N. The company is Play the Future, so it's Andy at PlayTheFuture.com. My Twitter is at AndyNolman, A-N-D-Y-N-U-L-M-A-N. So, you know, I'm reachable. I'm pretty, pretty easy to get hold of. Uh, the only problem is um, most people don't want to, so that's uh, no. I'm being facetious, but and, I, I'm getting the pity. I'm getting the, trying to get the pity vote from your your listeners. Yeah, exactly. Listen, I think uh, it's an amazing story. I really appreciate you sharing sharing with us. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.